Let us pray. Loving and merciful God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here in this place together be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I wonder if any of you have had the experience of rereading something that you've read perhaps dozens, perhaps even hundreds of times before, and finding something completely new in it, some detail that you never noticed, some nuance of meaning that you never quite grasped, some question that you never asked yourself. That happened to me as I prepared for this sermon. I find the Bible has a way of doing this to us, of speaking to us in whatever place we find ourselves, of addressing our needs and our issues and coming to life in a very personal way. I think it has to do with the way that our perceptions change so that we see different things each time we read. The way we relate to scripture depends on many factors, including our emotional state, personal issues we're struggling with, and the concerns of our friends and family, and other things. So as I pondered Mark's account of the baptism of Jesus, I found myself fixated on the phrase in verse 4, that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Wait a minute, I said to myself. My understanding of Jesus includes the idea that Jesus was without sin, that Jesus' sinless life allowed him to be the unblemished sacrifice that gained the forgiveness of sin for all of humankind. And if that is the case, I asked myself, why did Jesus need John's baptism? Where did the idea of baptism come from anyway? What does it mean? What did it mean to Jesus and to the people of Jerusalem in that period of history? I had a lot of questions just from noticing that one little point. So I did some research. And I found that the rite of baptism <clears throat> has its roots in ritual purifications, washings that were a strong part of Israelite tradition. Scholars indicate the literal meaning of the Greek word, baptizo, is to place into. And so baptism involves placing something or someone into a new relationship with something or someone else. So these two ideas kind of came together and baptism became a water ritual for the purpose of establishing or renewing a relationship with God. By the time of Jesus, baptism was one of the three ritual requirements for a Gentile who was converting to Judaism. Those three requirements were circumcision for males, baptism with multiple witnesses, and making a formal offering in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, since that was the only context officially recognized by the the Jewish religious establishment, participating in baptism would have been somewhat embarrassing for a member of the religious establishment. 
So then the question is, why would Jesus need to participate in this ritual? And one reason I find in the idea of repentance. We mostly think of repentance as a call to turn away from sin, but it also includes a requirement of turning toward God. This component of repentance is implicit in the understanding that baptism centers on the creation or renewal of a relationship with God. In fact, some people recognize sin as that which separates us from God. So in that case, turning away from sin also implicitly includes turning toward God. So one reason that Jesus would participate in a ritual baptism is to express the importance of a reverent relationship with God. A second reason that Jesus may have participated in this rite is to model humility to his followers. This is the humility described in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the humility that expresses itself as love for the other. The humility that puts the other's needs before one's own needs. The humility that recognizes and celebrates our common human dignity. This is the humility embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Christ first expressed it in his submission to the baptism of John. A third reason that Jesus may have participated in John's baptism can be found in the prophetic message of his entire ministry. One of the major themes that Jesus emphasized in his teaching is the idea that the Jewish religious establishment had lost touch with the reasons for some of their religious practices. They had lost touch with their roots. They had lost touch with the people because they had become more concerned with maintaining the institution of the temple. Perhaps they had even lost touch with God. The formal sacrifices and offerings for sin, for purification, had become more concerned with maintaining the purity of the temple than with the people. The rich lifestyle that the priestly class lived in was maintained on the backs of the common people. Contrast that with the simple lifestyle of John the Baptist. The text tells us that John wore clothes made of camel hair and a leather belt. Clearly these were simple but functional garments. Similarly, John ate food that was readily and naturally available, dried locusts and honey that were harvested from the environment around him. And John proclaimed an accessible message about forgiveness for the common people. By submitting to John's baptism, Jesus aligns his newly inaugurated ministry with this message of simplicity and salvation for the people of God.
And these are all good reasons for Jesus to participate in John's baptism, even though Jesus did not explicitly need the forgiveness that John's message offered. And yet, I think there's something more to it. You see, throughout the history of the relationship between God and God's people, there's a tension between God's separateness, God's otherness, and God's desire for a relationship with people. The First Testament lesson this morning describes creation. It describes the first act of creation. And it shows that part of that first act was defining a distinction, separating light from darkness, and yet announcing that that difference is good. The whole history of the people of Israel is a tug of war between the holiness and the otherness of God and the undeniable love of God for God's people. God's otherness is characterized in the God of Moses who dwells upon God's holy mountain and cannot be approached except through God's designated intermediary, Moses. At the same time, God is providing for God's people, providing guidance and protection in the form of a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, and providing sustenance by providing manna from heaven to feed God's people. The God of the Israelites is even distinguished from the gods of the surrounding country because the God of the Israelites is a God who goes with the people wherever they travel. The gods in the surrounding areas were generally associated with a specific geographical location, the city where their temple was. Even the, the priestly class in the beginnings of the Hebrew people, a, a large portion of their duty was preparing the tabernacle, the tent that God dwelled in, and carrying it along with the people. And in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate expression of the love of God. A God who reached into our human context and became one of us experiencing all that it is to be human while still retaining the divinity of God's nature. The decision of Christ to participate in John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins represents an act of solidarity with all of humankind. It's an expression of the humility of God's nature, of Christ's nature. It is the manifestation of God bending down to encounter humankind to understand what it means to be fully human. And at the same time, it is a prime example of humankind being lifted up to the fellowship of God, the Creator. It's a statement that says, maybe we are not so different after all. And if that's the case, if God and humankind are as similar as this action implies, then maybe our human differences are smaller than we believe them to be. This spirit of solidarity is the same spirit that I have found embodied in the mission of Presbyterian Welcome. I was raised in a quite conservative Christian environment, and I arrived at my stance on LGBT issues by personalizing it, by thinking about it in the context of my children, and realizing that I would not want my children to be treated any differently than anyone else if they were to come out. 
That's the context that I brought with me to Presbyterian Welcome. But after working with Presbyterian Welcome for the last six months, they've opened my eyes to many other dimensions of this work. It's work that takes a stand of solidarity with those who have been mistreated or told that they are somehow less because of their sexuality. It's work that seeks to bring a voice to the voiceless within the context of the PCUSA. It is work that seeks to heal those who have been hurt, regardless of where they stand on the issue, because we recognize that there is plenty of hurt to go around. It is work that recognizes that there are many ways to connect to God, and the traditional church does not necessarily have a monopoly on all of them. It is work that seeks to break down the walls that we build between us based upon our differences and our fears of those differences. It is even work that seeks to prevent building those walls in the first place. Most of all, it is affecting change in the world by being the change that we want to see. See, in the end, the LGBT issue is not a question of sexuality, it's a question of humanity. The work of Presbyterian Welcome is work that cries out, work that says we are the same, you and I. We are human with all our strengths and weaknesses, with all our faults and foibles. We may have our differences, but we have much in common. We are more alike than not. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ demonstrates God's love for us. But the baptism of Christ demonstrates that even most holy God, our creator, finds some element of common ground with our humanity. If God can overcome the differences between God and mankind, surely we can overcome the petty fears and differences between us as human beings. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.